Welcome everybody to the Electric Freeze Podcast. I'm your host Sean McInerney. Hope you're all well. Now this week I'm talking with Neil Curran. Now I'd never actually met Neil before, despite the fact we're both Irish improvisers to my shame. So nice talking with him about improv. He's a fascinating improv mind and he's been all over the world teaching and performing. Now, Neil is the founder of Lower the Tone, which is an improv theatre based in Dublin, and of Improv Utopia in Ireland. It was so nice to talk with Neil about all his experience teaching, performing, and of course, Neil Plus One, which I was really interested to hear about. So without further ado, here's my chat with Neil Curran. So, so yeah, when I was growing up, theatre was a funny thing, less so nowadays, but certainly when I was growing up, Irish theatre was very disconnected from youth, from, from young people. Uh, I'm speaking in general terms now, not having a go. Like, but if you looked at, say, the main theatres that Ireland and, say, Dublin had, because that's where I lived, uh, you know, they, they were businesses, so they were tend to have the same, you know, a rota of plays or, you know, same theme or... A, I don't know what the word is, a gen, the same stuff, we'll say stuff, that's a very technical term, stuff was on. <laughs> so while I was going to the theatre because my mother was in productions and she would kind of educate us as her kids to, oh, you should see this play, she's that play. And my, my so so well just, 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 just to jump in there just a second, uh, your mum, did she do like, would she be performing on like main stages or is this like, like local plays or what kind of level was your mum performing at? Yeah, so, yeah, she was funny because she blames me for the end of her career because, um, <laughs> She was she was reaching this peak and then she found out she was pregnant. I know I wasn't planned, ma'am. I know I wasn't planned. Uh, so that kind of I think she was stepping into a zone where she was possibly going to move into into TV space. So obviously having kids, you know, changed that. Um, but she 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 is an incredible actor. Uh, I'm not just saying that because it's my mother, but you know, when you look at the, the reviews she had, but as a child you don't appreciate that because that's your mother. You know, you're you just assume everyone's brilliant if your mother's brilliant. And I mean, I remember reading reviews of her plays and the play would suck, but the, the critic would, would single her out and say her performance was excellent. You know, even if she was in a supporting role, and that, that tend, wow. tended to be, to be a theme. But you take it for granted when you're young. So it's only when I got older I realised, hang on, this is a thing. But in saying that, none of my friends went to the theatre, you know, and there was never play on about something cool. You know, it was the John B. Keynes and the Brian Friels back in the day. <laughs> uh which is part of the reason why there was a disconnect in those times, I think, between a lot of young people and theatre. Um, I could say less so now because we've got a lot of, you know, a lot of more contemporary theatres, a lot of original work. But I think as time has gone on, that is, there's a lot of work to be done in that space. Controversial, I know. Um, <laughs> so, I, so that was an interesting thing as well. Like I used to think about why, why do my friends not want to go to theatre? Because the theatre is such an immersive experience, whether it's improv or whether it's a play you're going to see. You know, when, I went, when you go to the movies, I would tend to sit near the back of the cinema, but when, I, when I'm in a theatre, I want to sit up the front. I want to be immersed in the experience. I want to feel, I want to be on that stage, you know, as, as an audience member, because there's something that you capture in, in theatre that you don't get in the, on TV or in, or in the movies, no matter how big the budget is for Hollywood blockbuster, no matter what 3D glasses you're wearing, nothing will beat the feeling of sitting right at the front in the theatre. Uh, but oh, I totally why agree with were, that, yeah. Why, but why were my friends and you know young people not going to the theatre in their masses? Um, so, that, yeah, that was the thing I, I thought about. Um, so, yeah, now look at us. We can't go to the theatre now. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you, so you grew up, and your mum was a performer, and she obviously kind of gave you the bug, 
you were both into improv. You were watching, as you said, uh, whose line is it anyway? And there was debates over who your favorite was. But uh, so, like, when did you make that move to actually get into improv? Like, what, like, what age were you? What were you kind of doing in your life at that point? So, so I guess I, I can't put an exact age on it, but it. I'm pretty sure it was around my twenties, late twenties at some point. But I'd stepped into theatre. I got involved in theatre, and I set up and was one of the driving forces behind the theatre company that are still going called No Drama Theatre. And um, the philosophy that I wanted with that theatre company is very much a philosophy I would carry in the improv world, and that was, you know, let's make it, let's make theatre more accessible for adults, for young adults, or for people who want to get into theatre. Because I, I discovered found that that was a bit of a roadblock as well. Great. So. One of the one of the rules, as such one of the principles of of the theatre company that that they still in place today is is that drop in workshops were a thing, so there was a weekly drop in workshop, and I'm pretty certain that Dublin had no theatre company that was doing this at the time. There was nobody doing drop in workshops, and as such, improv was a tool that was being used in those workshops pretty much every week because we you know if you have a drop in workshop, you have different people each week. It's hard, and we wanted to make it as accessible as possible. We wanted to clicks on the head so if you turn up in the middle of a month you have the same access that you know somebody who's been home from the last for over for the last 10 weeks so we use a lot of improv as part of that so and, and from that unknowingly at the time that helped form a community and then suddenly you go from being responsible for a theater group to being now responsible for a community <laughs> uh, which again leads into improv so but from there i realized when i was running that and you know it was a theater company we had a committee running things and committees can be hard work. You know, everyone has the same goal of wanting the group to be amazing, but sometimes we're all pulling in different directions. So mm. I've kind of reached a point where I realized, look, I just want to completely focus on improv now. And I, that's where I need to, you know, I don't need to be you know, running around worrying about where we're going to get costumes for the next play or, or finding the person to do that. Let's focus purely on improv. So um, I set sail, set sail for the seventies. Well, I didn't set sail, but what I was doing at the time was <laughs> I was going to the UK because the, the scene in Dublin was very limited there was there was no I, I, I always say this cautiously but there was no long form that I was aware of certainly in Dublin I think in Cork with Snatch Snatch, Snatch might have been doing long form at the time um, so the, but, when you so, say there was no long form so there was like a short form scene in certain parts yeah and you had the the, 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 the international had the Dublin comedy improv I mean they're like 200 years doing one of the best short form shows in the world you know they're still going so uh, that was a staple when i was in when i was in college before after i had become an adult before i was in this theater world and whose line wasn't on tv anymore i was going to the inter every monday night religiously to see the dublin comedy improv and this was back in the days when you know uh dougal for father ted was in the lineup you know uh, you know that that's uh, that uh, it's and people who are now on TV or who have been on TV since we're starting out in, in, in there. So that so yeah, improv remained even in that gap period of the guts of ten years. Improv still remains an important part of you know my outlet. Why? So so yeah, sorry. Then <laughs> so yeah, then I just start. I, I realized very quickly that I because I there was some teachers I'd worked with in Dublin, obviously outside of theater and and specifically relating to improv, but I realized there's only so much I could do, and there was a really cool chap in Dublin called Peter O'Byrne who you know he used to pester me and say because we, we often would get him in to do workshops for us in drama and he used to say you should be focusing on long form and you should be focusing on long form, um, and where so, did he learn it? Peter, oh God, I don't know. He, <laughs> Peter is like. He, a bit, Peter's a guru if, if I don't like the word guru but we're going to call Peter the, the Irish guru of, of improv because he's been doing it so long and um, 
But, but yeah, so he, I, I, I started, I went to the UK, and I suppose the game changer was when I met the Maydays. Um, oh, okay. Because they kind of are solely responsible for everything that happened after that. Because there was a couple of things that stood out. First of all, they were, an ama- they were amazing teachers. Uh, <laughs> second of all, though, was they had a huge emphasis on community. They were a big part of community. And it kind of blew my mind. And I remember having a conversation with somebody you might know, Steve Rowe. Oh, yeah. Uh, who, who set up Hoopla and, and Steve told me the story about Hoopla being set up and how the Maydays helped, helped them and I was like that's amazing like technically you were going into competition with the Maydays who set, helped you set up the Hoopla and, and I just found this so inspiring and they Maydays like they were bringing teachers over to the UK and stuff like that so and they then started doing their retreats the improv retreat um, so yeah that, that kind of started that journey then to being bigger than just me wanting to learn improv oh um, wow so you had a similar kind of origin in improv to steve rowe then because that's pretty much how he got set up he got involved with the maydays they trained him up uh kind of gave him some pointers as you said and you know he started hoopla was that done in brighton though or did you meet the maydays in london london yeah it was london i've oh, only been to brighton once uh what would you think <laughs> Uh, I liked it. I was only there for a weekend. I was teaching a classroom on behalf of the Maydays, which was like a super, it was a, it was a huge show for me. It was like, it could have been just like, feck it, we can't get anyone in the UK to cover us for one night. Get Neil over, <laughs> he'll come over. I mean, it could have been that. But to me, it was like, I felt I felt like very like, I, I, it was a very humbling moment. And I was like, don't screw this up, Neil. Don't screw this up. <laughs> oh, wow. So you come to London, you meet the Maydays. I mean, which teachers of the Maydays kind of stood out to you? Was there? Yeah, John Kramer. Uh, now, they're all brilliant. They are all fantastic, and I could give you a bio on each one and what I'd get from them and why I love them. But John Kramer was incredible because he, you know, and I had him over in Dublin many, many times. But but John was just one of the most incredible teachers I've ever met in my life. He's, you know, again, I I don't want to use fancy words because we use them too flippantly nowadays. But he he was gifted when it came to teaching. He had an incredible ability to read people, to kind of see beyond the, the walls and barriers we put up. Uh, he was just a phenomenal teacher and he has an ability to see past the walls and barriers we put up he has an ability to read people and he knows how to get under your skin in a workshop space wow and um, I'd never met anyone like him in in my life that was able to teach like that but there was no bullshit with him as well like he you know he was very humble um, very much a straight talker and, and you know I brought him over to Dublin many times and you know, John is the kind of person that you say, if John is teaching a workshop in Russia and you're in Dublin, you take a plane and go to Russia to take that <laughs> workshop, you know. Uh, he, he's just incredible like that. But, you know, uh, but all the Maydays, I mean, I could give you a rundown of all the Maydays and why they're all fantastic. Oh, yeah, um, they're all great. But, yeah, I've, I've seen them multiple times. I've done a few workshops with them myself and they're great. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and they've all got a kind of like a unique skill set almost, you know, the, what they teach as well and so, so that just just the whole Mayday's experience was just so wonderful and when you think about you know the arts and certainly my experience in arts and this isn't the experience of everyone obviously but the the arts I, I realized very quickly from those days that community is key with a lot of these kind of art forms like improv you know it's almost like this underground comedy scene you know improv is <laughs> tagged on the bill of a stand-up comedy festival you know it's like the bastard cousin I think is how I once described it and um, so community is very important. And like the first time I was in Chicago, I was sitting in the TJ and Dave show and everyone's like, oh, you got to go see TJ and Dave. And they book out weeks in advance. And I was like, who's going to go see two old men do an improv show and like book out weeks in advance. 
And I'm sitting in I.O. and you could hear a pin drop in the place when they came out on stage. And I looked around the theatre and I was like, a lot of people in the audience here are students or disciples of improv. These aren't just random people who are like, oh, what do we do tonight? Let's go on a night out. Oh, here's a place called I.O. They weren't people like that. The vast majority were from the improv world. Um, and again, that spoke to me as you have to build community to kind of make this to make this a workable thing, you know. Um, so so that kind of was what I kind of took back to Ireland then was that whole sense of what I'd picked up from the theatre from running no drama and, and with improv was like I've, I've got to put in the work and the time here and see if I can build a community from you know spread my the love I've received to Ireland and see who will bite and kind of went from there then Wow okay it's, it's funny because so, I think Steve took the same thing and obviously set up Hoopla in London and built up a strong community as well. But like most people I speak to about Ireland improv, they talk about the community you've built and you know that there's a big improv scene in Dublin and you're you you're a big part of that. How did you find Dublin in terms of the reception to long form? Like, did people eat it up? Was there hesitation? Like, what was the kind of feeling when you when you started setting up your school? Well, this is the funny thing with improv is that there's, and I, I, some of this might sound like total cod's wallop. I'm trying not to swear, so if I say swear words that don't make sense, I apologize. <laughs> but, <laughs> you can say the odd swear, don't worry. <laughs> like, I, think, I think I noticed was, being in the US, was like Monday night is Harold night and Tuesday night is Amanda night or whatever it may be. You, I'm not saying it's all like that, but it might seem nice like that. And I was like, who gives a shit? Like, if you really want audiences to come, they're not going to go, ooh, there's a Harold on tonight in, in Tightrope at Dublin. So that, nobody cares. How you market an improv show is no different than how you market a band, a play, you know, a, a, com- a stand-up comedy night. You know, you, you, if, you don't, if you can't rely on the name of the person to sell it, then you're going to have a, have a good marketing campaign. So whether it's long form or short form, didn't matter to an audience per se. Game-based improv, short form improv certainly has a place, like definitely works better in a pub than, than long form those yeah. but that being said we had done plenty of harolds in a pub uh with the group the, when i my first long form group um what, so what was the first one called so it technically it was part no drama theater so i think we were just technically no drama theater but we eventually were called improv lova everyone hated the <laughs> name except lova. me yeah everyone hated the name except me but i, I really liked it um, <laughs> and then most of us in improv lova went on to become kill the monster um most okay. of them, but I, I think we were the first. We right. I, I'm pretty confident that I can say that Improv Lover were the first native indigenous Irish Harold group. <laughs> uh, so I, specific. I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure the Harold could have been done before by guests, and I don't even think Snatch were doing Harold. I'm not competing with Snatch, but I'd like. It's nice. You put that on my feckin' tombstone. <laughs> the first Harold's group that no, and still no one gives a shit about Harold. Uh, so, so, so yeah, we, so. Yeah, we were doing that, but the audience didn't care. The audience just wanted to be entertained. So what I quickly realized when when I was teaching was um, I wanted to grow the community. And the skills of improv were very appealing to people, to professionals. And most people who wanted to take improv classes didn't necessarily want to perform. So I dropped all the long form, short form, stuff like that, and just sold, marketed improv and put the focus on improv. And, you know, and that's still the way I teach today is that level one improv class is an improv class. Uh, it's not short form, it's not long form, it's improv. You have to learn how to improvise before you can, you know, 
go down further perhaps mm. and then if somebody wants to you know if, if i've done my job right and they want to go further then great we can go down that road and they can decide you know what appeals to the most um but you know there are audiences that won't want to watch long form there's in settings that people won't want to watch long form and there's settings and environments where short form doesn't necessarily fit or might not necessarily work so well mm. so it's less about you know what you're calling a show or get or putting yourself a, in, in a bucket and more so about creating a show or curating a show that um meets the expectations that you want your audience to have you set the expectations but your environment has a part to play in that have i gone off on tangent there no no that, that all made total sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> what no. was your question again Ed? Was, uh, when did you first start doing it <laughs> No, but I totally get what you mean. I mean, there's so many teams or performers I've spoken to where, you know, they're they're trying to find a way to communicate what improv is to their audience from the get go when they do a show. Because if you're in a, you know if you're in a city where it's unknown, there's you've got to find a way to connect with your audience because, like, if you're yeah. in a city like Chicago, everybody's aware to a certain extent what improv is. If you're in London, there's a slight bit of knowledge, but not much. But if you're in like you know like if I were to do an improv show like rural ireland do you know what i mean like no one's gonna have an absolute notion what i'm doing so you gotta find a way to make it um appetizing to your audience and i agree like short form is pretty more uh you know digestible to begin with and then like uh, shoot from the hip in london they do a mixture of short form and long form because they perform to mainly stand-up audiences so it just mm. it's a way of kind of easing into it for the audience and that's what we did with Improv Lova. We would do the first half. We originally started the first half as being short form and the second half being long form, you can Harold or whatever. And then uh, Orla McGovern in Galway, then she suggested, why don't you do it the other way around? Because the audience will be more drunk by the time you come to long form. Otherwise, it may not be a soap. And it was quite an quite a genius suggestion because it made complete sense. You know, do the long form when they're sober. So then when you get to the short form, they can shout dildo up as much as they want. In the <laughs> That's a bit of a bold move, though, as well, because if you got like a long, patient, you know, moving long form scene, <laughs> you know, you, you potentially lose people. Um, so, like, was was that, was that something you were conscious of, or were you like, no, we're going to smash this long form, uh, you know, get them? It's going to be really funny. It's going to be really big. Like, what was the kind of goal when you did your shows? And that you know that is a fundamental question in improv, and I often talk to students about that. Why the hell do we improvise? Because it's not for money. We're not doing it for the cash. We're not. We're not doing it for the kudos. Because nobody <laughs> certainly nobody in Ireland gives a shit. You know, we're not inundated with funding offers from from all the different funding bodies. So it is a fundamental question: Why are we doing it? And it, for me, it was playing with the people I was playing with. I really enjoyed playing with them. Um, you know, back in the no drama days, the improv lover days, it was playing with those people. It was a lot of fun, and it was very much everyone had their unique style and approach and it was great and we had great adventures with it and you have to be selfish as an improviser and say i'm going to have fun with this and you know sec my second goal is to entertain the audience because you know it is that thing of if you're having fun the audience is having fun and i think that has to be has to be your focus so that was certainly a focus for us was just enjoy it and worry about the aftermath uh, you know another time yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's kind of goes back to, the, you know, you learn it very early on in improv. Like, if you walk onto a scene and you're like, this is going to be hilarious, the audience is going to love this, and it bombs <laughs> almost every time. Whereas if you just yeah. lose yourself in what you're doing, nine times out of ten, it's going to go really well, and the audience will love it. So it makes total sense what you're saying. I totally agree. You came back to Dublin. You were kind of setting up a long-form community, and you were, you were teaching. Improv community. 
improv community. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> I apologize if I was vague. <laughs> um, so you, you go back to Dublin, you set up an improv community and you're teaching long form. How did you find teaching? Like, did it, did it come naturally to you in terms of like teaching improv? Cause you did, you're obviously doing workshops in drama or did you find it challenging to begin with? I really enjoyed it and I'm going to vomit my mouth a few times when I say this. So it, it seemed to come very, it seemed to come very natural to me. And there was a, a kind of a, a changing moment for me was when a, one of my students at the time, um, I won't mention her name, but she was a psychologist and she asked me after a class one day, where did you learn to teach? You have an incredible gift of getting under people's skin. You, you're oh, really wow. good at getting people's under skin and knowing how to push buttons. And I remember the workshops and it was a particular exercise we were doing where um, it was an emotion workshop. And um, I think what was happening was that she wasn't aware that she had a barrier with a particular ta- thing in the workshop and I could see it. And she was very impressed that not only was it make her aware of it, but I was able to get her through that. And that was kind of a triggering moment for me to kind of go, you know what, I, I've never studied how to teach. Um, I should do that. And then I kind of like, well, actually, have too many improvisers study how to teach? Or is it like in business, the way if you're good at your job, you get promoted to manager without any training and so that kind of thing. <laughs> So, so um, that then became a pursuit. Um, but, you know, throughout my improv journey, I've always been absorbing like a sponge improv resources. So pre, like obviously way before COVID, I was, because I had very limited options in Dublin, I was Googling improv shows online on YouTube and watching really crap handheld, you know, <laughs> low resolution cameras recording shows in a black box somewhere. I, so I was, I was always watching. Always does it justice. <laughs> Always does. It's like you're there. It's really like you're there. Um, so I was watching as much content as I could online. That was how I first kind of before I formally learned how to do Harold. That was how I first learned how to do Harold. Really watching it, watching it, reading Truth and Comedy. That was how I learned. Why? Wow. Um, so it was pure, it was almost theoretical to a certain point. <laughs> it, it very much was. It, we were talk about winging it. Like we were winging improv. You know. Why? Wow. Um, I love that. And I read as many books as I could, watched all the talks, and there were certain books that stood out to me. Um, you know, one I always credit is the Improv Handbook, uh, Tom Selinsky and Deborah Francis White, uh, which is kind of like my Bible in improv. Um, so, so that you know was was helping with that improv journey, and I eventually went on. I, I, I was like I was like a, an addict. I was a junkie for improv, like workshops. <laughs> I was taking every workshop. I think every workshop on the planet. I, I was I actually going to say that because. Like you, from what I've heard and what I've read, like you've trained kind of throughout the U.S., Canada, and throughout Europe as well. I mean, you know, like from all that training, which which kind of lessons or what kind of teachers stood out to you? Well, again, not to harp on a bit, but John John Kramer definitely was you know was incredible, and all of the Maydays. So I'm not going to name because I'll miss somebody, but all of the Maydays I've learned so much from. But they're just incredibly personable approachable uh, people um so the maidens obviously um some cliche some cliche name dropping now um, and <laughs> susan messing is just an inspiration you yeah know, you have somebody who's up at that guru level who doesn't go on like a guru uh, and she, she's incredible um she's such yeah, a warm presence in a workshop as well like, totally you know, yeah because totally. I, I i thought she was going to be this like really intense teacher but she was so welcoming from the moment you walk into the room but when you see her on stage she's absolutely fearless so it's an incredible teacher to have you know 
Totally. And, and she's so honest with you. Like, she's not a fan of format and structure and structure, you know, um, and, and you're just like, what? You know, you wouldn't think that when you Chelsea is fantastic at it and she's just being nice. But, uh, you know, that, that kind of that honesty is quite, is quite profound. Um, I think I, I've said I've said the is Jason Chin, uh, the late Jason Chin from Iowa, Chicago. That was another game changer for me because he I did an intensive with him and he he kind of taught us to embrace our quirkiness, embrace who we are. I'd never met somebody. Yeah, he was so cool and so nerdy. And I was like, wait, I was bullied in school for being nerdy and you're cool. <laughs> um, like, I, I, did an, I did an intensive with him and he um, and we had a couple of days and he he was using references to Robocop for teaching improv. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> and so people have taken class with me now know where I get it. But he, he was so encouraging as well. He was incredibly encouraging. And that was, that was incredibly, you know, powerful for me. Um, I have heard amazing things about his teaching. Uh, obviously, it was very, very sad what happened. But like, apparently, he was a, such an, a big figure in uh, IO. Yeah, to- totally, totally. Um, I, I don't want to be name dropping, and I'm conscious now I'll, I'll get myself into trouble. I'll say something or not say something. But, <laughs> you know, Brian James O'Connell, he's formerly the pack. He's a fantastic teacher. He was like a more talented version of me in terms of his approach to improv and learning. He had had a similar journey, except he was based in L.A., so he was able to go see shows live. But he demystified a lot of things in improv in terms of his approach which is really cool um who, who else uh, so, uh, so sorry uh, just just jump in on that well like what was his approach what kind of did he demystify and um, well so he so i think that i always said so and this kind of led to the creation of neil plus one the show but like we have all these rules in improv uh, but there's no rules in improv uh, that used to drive me wild when people say that hey you just yes and that's the only rule but there's no rules like that doesn't make any sense like stop telling us that um <laughs> it's like when they so say you know, uh, when you're trying to work out what to do and they're like you can do anything that's not an answer yeah. <laughs> and and even even Susan's thing of like if you're not having fun you're the asshole. It's like every beginner like if you tell that to a beginner when they're learning improv they go oh I'm not having fun so I'm the asshole. So then you've got <laughs> you know all your assholes leaving the class because uh, they don't understand what that means. But even that I, I struggle with and and it's, um, what makes a scene good? That was a question I always had. How do you know a scene is good and how do you know it's bad? And you, the answer can't be well someone in the audience will tell you afterwards. There has to be a way in the scene that you know if it's going well or not. And I know we can get a feel and all the rest, but then, you know, as you, you know, move to a more advanced level with improv, there has to be a way that you can tell that more moment. And between Brian, um, uh, teaches position play. And it's something that I think Miles Stroth originally came up with. I may be mistaken on that. So apologies <laughs> if I am, uh, but Brian was the one I, I'd, I'd learned it from. And Brian essentially, you know, teaches position play, which teaches you different styles of, of different types of scenes different w- ways scenes can go and it, it's it sounds scientific and mechanical but actually it's quite inspired because it breaks down comedy in a way it breaks down structure within a scene we have structures for formats you know but mm. we don't necessarily have structure for scene and he broke that down it's not the be all and end all i'm sure there's plenty of ways of doing it but it's certainly that was something that spoke to me couple that with his teaching style and you know it was you know it was very very profound for me Wow. Yeah, I, mean, I love when you have moments like that with teachers when they just say something and it just stays with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, and and he's a really nice guy as well. And he does one to one coaching. And that's the thing of like one to one coaching and improv. How does that work? But he makes it work. Uh, if you ever a chance to do one to one coaching with 
BLC, you just got to do it. Um, but I, I, that's the thing though with improv. Like I, I, I don't, I don't want to drop names because like I, I've there's like fifty teachers or something. I think I have list. I've I've kept a list of all the teachers I've taken class with, either either a short class or or something longer. And that's the thing with improv is uh, improv is a bit like Batman's utility belt. <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't. You know, we have. I think we have an advantage in Europe. In improv, not an advantage, but we have a slight, there's one thing we have that the Americans don't have, and that is we don't have an I.O., we don't have a second city. I know we've got Boom Chicago and all the rest, and but people here have access to improv from different teachers, and the teachers that teach in Europe have learned from different teachers. And I think that's to our, to our advantage in one way, because there's no college affiliation. There's no kind of, well, we're going to teach the I.O. way, or we're going to teach you the second city way. Uh, and to me, improv is like the Batman's utility belt. You can learn, take what's useful from the teachers that you're learning from and put that in your t- utility belt. And if there's something you're picking up or that you're not getting, that's totally fine. Let that go. Maybe that's not something that works works for you. Um, so when you're doing a scene, you know, if you're performing with someone from UCB or if you're performing with somebody you know, who's used to doing musicals or if you're performing with somebody who's, you know, does something more dramatic, you have all these tools in your belt that you can pull on and use... Um, you know that will help help you get through the scene, and I think that's important for us as improvisers to note that you know there there's no one right way, and uh, there's an infinite number of right ways. And uh, when somebody says to me, oh, "I love improv," it's kind of like saying I love sport. And I usually say, uh, "Oh, do you like cricket? Then I bet you don't like cricket. Well, you know, <laughs> don't like cricket. Well, then you don't just like sport." So improv is the same. It's like improv is just you know it's it's like drama. I like drama, and um, so. But in improv, you've got short form, long form, mid forms, musicals, rap, uh, dramatic. You've all of this narrative, stuff. Yeah. Uh, narrative, yeah. Narrative. So, so you know, there'll be things that you don't like doing. There'll be things like you do like doing. So you know, find what it is that you like doing within that improv sphere and do lots of it. Um, and and you know, I think it's, I think a lot of improvisers real realize that along their way, and it comes it comes back to that: expose yourself to as many teachers as you can, like. I, I remember the first time I took a musical improv class I, I took it because I didn't want to do it and I knew that was the right reason to do it because there was no way I ever wanted to do a musical and then cut to a point in my improv career and I'm on stage with Will in uh, for the preview night of their musical When X Meets Y going what the hell am I doing here <laughs> you know, but that all came from do musical improv just so you know that it's not something you want to do and that you're not going to like it and then I ended up really liking it and um, but, you know, I did the same thing when it came to improvised hip-hop. I took a class with Trent Pansy, Pansy in, in, in um, Sweden, uh, from Sweden, sorry. And I sucked at it, and I loved watching it, but I sucked at it. But at least I can now say, yeah, you were right there, Neil. You were going to suck at that, and you definitely did. And it's okay. You can enjoy other people doing it without having to do it yourself. Um, so that's Absolutely. Nice. <laughs> so that's really nice. I, I totally agree with you, Neil. I mean, I, I've trained with a lot of different schools of thought and improv as well, and I find you do find something beneficial from each one. I got to think you have to go all chips in into one in order to become mm-hmm. you know, a good improviser. You know, and I know that's a crazy thing to say, a good improviser, but like, you know, it's just finding what works for you. And yeah, I tried musical improv and I fucking hated it. So <laughs> I can totally <laughs> relate to where you're coming from. Um, so Neil plus one, I've heard a lot about this, and you mentioned it earlier on. Um, what inspired that? I'm uh, sorry, just for our listeners, Neil plus one is a show Neil does where he gets a random member of the audience up on stage with him and does an improv set. Um, now, to most people, that as a performer would be terrifying. For an audience member, I'm sure it's equally terrifying. So Neil, what inspired this? 
If you want to be a millionaire in improv, you've got to do a show with no other members of a troupe. <laughs> do it on your own. <laughs> That's how I made my millions. <laughs> purely financially driven. Love it. What an answer. Purely, purely greed. It's purely greed. Uh, there, there, there was two things. Uh, w- one thing was um, I was traveling a lot and I didn't have a group to travel with. And... It, you know, different people at different stages in their life. To some people, improv is just really a hobby and will never be more than that, and that's totally cool. But, you know, if you want to travel with a group and do festivals, you need to have the right people to do that. Um, so I kind of started looking at, well, what can you do as a one-person show? You know, can you use an audience member? But also with that, I think that bothered me about improv was going back to the rules thing of, like, we have so many cliches in improv, like, make the other person look good. There's no wrong way of doing this, but we're going to tell you the rules. Like, there's a lot of that that stuff. And I kind of had this realisation that, you know, if there's no wrong way to do this, if you can't break improv, then it shouldn't matter if I'm on stage with um, Enriquez or if I'm on stage with John Smith, who owns the spar on the corner there. Um, <laughs> it should, if I'm, if I'm, committing to what I'm doing and yes anding and all of that stuff uh, then it's just it should still work technically so I got I did more research and I came across a guy in Philadelphia called Matt Holmes and he had a show called Matt and and he was performing with all these members so I said I'll ask him I'll ask him what, what it's like and he'll probably <laughs> tell me to piss off and he was he was great actually he was very approachable oh you'd never met him before this I'd never met. I still haven't met him. I still oh, why? Met him. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we've, we've, we talked for a time and I still haven't met him, but we should. And I was nearly in his town one time. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, but he was very encouraging, very supportive. And like, you know, his advice from the get-go was book your first show and, and work it out. And you'll know in your first show. So I did. And Whoa, that's, worked that's, out. A, that's a bold strategy. <laughs> but, but the show, it, it became... A huge, it became much bigger to me personally than I'd ever envisaged because I I realized over the years of doing I'm doing what since 2013 or something I realized over the years that we put so many self limitation self limitating beliefs on ourselves even as improvisers we think that the boundaries the you know we put a glass ceiling above us we 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 make presumptions and assumptions about people and performers and it's all nonsense because it ultimately comes back to ourself i remember when i first started doing the show i would be almost terrified to take my eyes off the person on stage with me for fear that they would leave the stage and (laughs) and like and which is fair because you know that's that's your show over if they do yeah and yet yet you know cut to now and that's not an issue because obviously i've learned how to read people better and and all the rest but the show is built on support i basically support the crap out of the person who's with me i commit hard they can't make a mistake everything they say is the right thing to say even if they're trying to catch me out um and so you learn to really, really commit and support your partner no matter what. And that is a fantastic thing to, to realize. You kind of fear is taken away from you because you realize, actually, I don't have any control here. I have no, uh, I have no influence. I can't make this person do anything. I can't teach them anything. So it, it becomes very freeing. The fear becomes quite freeing because you realize you're not afraid of anything except that thing of fear itself um so i've had some fantastic experiences i've had some very profound experiences with that show some people have done it have actually gone on to study improv on the back of it um, really? and there, there is wow. a, 
there, there, there has been occasions where things have happened. I realize as well that comedy is sometimes the least interesting part of the show because we can create dramas. You have somebody who's not trained, and like, I, I get someone from the audience who's not an improviser and, and not an actor, but if they can create art on stage, create dramatic moments, create com- comedic moments, I mean, that, that's very powerful, but sometimes the dramatic moments, because the show is kind of an alternate universe look at their life. Um, because, they're, they're, you know, we have a chat up front in front of the audience, like an interview, I pluck some information out of them, and that will inspire the show. So sometimes the show can be quite cathartic for the person. Um, a couple of people have described it as ther- therapy. Um <laughs> And it is that thing, like sometimes real life is, you know, imitating life or whatever. No, that has nothing to do with it. But it's like <laughs> sometimes what plays out on stage affects us in way, way more in ways that go beyond just the comedy. There was a show I did in Barcelona um, a few years ago, and the guy I got from the audience, Thomas, was his name. And I remember I was em- emotionally distraught in the show because he had gone through a breakup. And I realized as we were talking, the breakup was quite recent. It was a long-term breakup. Oh, so wow. it ended up becoming quite an inspiration for the show. And, and I remember at one point in the show, I presented him with a choice, his character a choice. And he told me it was the wrong choice. Not as in from an improv perspective, but, you know, it's like, do you want do you want dark chocolate or just milk chocolate? You know, obviously take the dark chocolate. And he took the milk chocolate. Uh, but I remember feeling very, very sad as a human being in that moment. And, you know, the, the finale scene be, was the finale scene because I just, <laughs> I couldn't go on. Oh, really? <laughs> I, was so, I was so personally sad at the story. And uh, I remember when the Maydays told me that she was crying during parts of the show. It was, you know, oh. uh, so that's lovely. Like, that's right. Now, there was just a, just a sign to say, the chap on stage at me was in a completely safe place, oblivious to all this going on and had a really great time. So it wasn't <laughs> like, uh, you know, we weren't, terrorizing him through his he didn't have a breakdown post show (laughs) why I think that you know that's that's something that I don't think we do enough of improv is like look beyond the comedy you know Mm. we have an art form that allows us to to create art in the moment you know just like that you know we can satirize in the moment you know we don't have to write anything we use real raw we can use real raw emotion to you know create these authentic connections create these authentic connections with the audience we should we should be exploring exploring these things uh, and I, that's why i have a lot of time for narrative improv and and certainly dramatic improv as well but narrative improv i i i, I really find that interesting and that, that's something that, that's one thing in improv that i really really love is narrative improv i find that a hell of a lot more interesting in my current last few years in improv i find that way more interesting to me as an improviser than say game based or say doing you know game of the same type type improv um i like when you can walk out of an improv show do like theater you can walk out of an improv show and you're talking about it i i, I did a show once and um Dave Rosowski was in the audience, which was kind of a lot of pressure. Yeah, uh, I like, don't, can imagine. Don't suck, Neil. Don't suck, because he'd probably hate it. <laughs> um, but it, like, he had a conversation with me after his news about some of the character choices and, and some of the things. And like, that's really cool. I mean, that was, again, something that was really nice to hear. Here was somebody, uh, you know, who's doing this a long time. And, you know, he was finding things to talk about beyond the comedy. Um but, you know, from a narrative perspective, P-Graph in, in Austin, Texas, Parallel Phonogrammograph, um, I, when I had them over in Dublin, they did two shows for us, but one of their shows was the villainy format, and they all come out dressed in very macabre suits, and the show format basically is one of them will end up playing a villain, there's four of them in the troupe, uh, one of them ends up playing the villain, and that person... <laughs> 
Love plays that. the show plays the show straight they they play the show straight and there was a scene it, it was a very dark piece um it was like a family and there was a, this other fella who was in uh who was up against the father and at one point there was a question mark over whether he was abusing the daughter oh, wow. uh all of this kind of stuff now done very tastefully but not tastefully how do you do that tastefully <laughs> but no it was it was something that was hinted at was like was he you know anyway that it doesn't that, that, kind of way off topic anyway there was a scene. <laughs> i'm trying to just say it was very a very powerful piece of theater that's what i'm getting at and but it there was, was very a scene respectfully in... done yes <laughs> neil only likes it if somebody's getting hurt in the content um there was a scene smoking in, in the shadows i like <laughs> yeah, it it's like i need that i need all these characters to die abysmally and uh, there was a scene and the two performers roy and um kareem were doing the scene and roy was the father and kareem was the, the landlord type person mm. and it was like a, a almost like a russian roulette whiskey scene without any russian roulette and there was moments of silence there was a lot of tension between the two of them sitting in the scene and i remember watching it saying to myself this is improv i'd forgotten that this is improv i forgot that the two people on stage have no idea where this is going or what's happening and that was that was so powerful it was so great to kind of see that play out and it's and so incredible when you see that like it's hard to believe that if they're making it up on the spot you know because they're reacting mm. like so truthfully and so quickly to one another and that kind of thing it's just it is because spellbinding sometimes to- totally totally and and the show was funny as well like it was a black comedy dark comedy and it was still funny but it had those dramatic and it had the tension you know it, ha- it had the tension there so there was more levers than just the comedy angle to be able to give to the audience and we were talking about it for ages afterwards you know we talked about it in the pub afterwards and that's great because with comedy you tend to get a short lifespan after the event you know if myself and yourself go to see spinal tap in the cinema tonight uh <laughs> look at us going to the cinema but you know <laughs> arguably one of the greatest comedies of all time but yeah after we come out of it we will quote the film from time to time and then we'll be talking about other things and that's not to diss comedy because i love comedy but you know it doesn't necessarily have the the, the same impact emotionally to us if that's the right word or it doesn't give us an it, we don't th- think about it as in the same way that we think about art that affects us or that moves us yeah yeah i know what you mean like you can you feel like when you read a book or you see a film or you see a piece of artwork like you say you know it, it hits you emotionally and it kind of you you have to kind of think about it after trying to register what it is you're feeling you know what i mean mm, so yeah. i i totally get you and that you know it does affect you in different ways so you've done you've performed at a lot of different improv festivals all over the world uh doing neil plus one like have you noticed any differences with audiences when you're performing like in terms of reaction that kind of thing um I think generally speaking audiences we all find beyond cultural differences we find the same things funny you know generally speaking Uh, certainly when I was performing in China um, that was interesting very interesting uh, because A there was (laughs) certain things I couldn't do and I was warned don't do this don't do that and there were things I wouldn't do anyway like you know they were like don't bring politics I was like it's never going to be into politics in the show anyway yeah and but there was an innocence to to the to the to the audience as well which was which was kind of surreal so i i was performing with a chap called kurt marbury and he at the time was running smack with his head in shanghai and so we kind of had a, a a mix of short form and long form so we had the short form first half and then we had kind of a mid form long form second half thing we just called it neil and neil plus kurt and we did this kind of uh confessions based long form set so kind of like 
the May Days kind of I, I think of it as like kind of like the May Days, but there was a Chinese. This is the Chinese version. So there was this, we had these bits of paper handed out in, in Mandarin, and you couldn't call it confessions. You couldn't call it anything that would sound Catholic or, or Christian because that's not the religion. So you were like, how do you get you know Chinese people to admit admit their guilty secrets? So like in Ireland, just say you know what's your what's your dirty secret? It's actually not want the priest to know. Uh, you know what are your guilty confessions? Um, so so normally when that certainly when the made days have done or when I've done any shows like that in the past it tends to be smut and made up stuff that comes out like dirty dirty stuff and there was none of that the Chinese audience there was none of that I think the most risque suggestion we got written down was um, that they found their colleague their boss attractive that was about as risque as, uh, as it got <laughs> oh my god I it was that. so so innocent. There was one I think about. I, I somebody got a wax. So uh, obviously a female had written it, and and she talked about she'd been waxed for the first time. And I was like, is this is this taking the piss? Is this somebody having a joke? It's like no, no, this is real. Like so nobody was admitting anything if they had dirty secrets. So that was surreal. That was like totally surreal. And then like on the back of that, you're like, well, you know, can I swear on stage if that happens? So that that was interesting. But like outside of that, um, I mean. I don't, there isn't really, I, I've done shows in the US, I, I remember being in a, what I thought was a heavily anti-religion show in in California, it was in the Bay Area, I was guesting with Comedy Sports, Comedy Sports San Jose, and we were doing a long form set, and it ended up becoming a religious theme, then we did this recreation essentially of, of the Twelve Apostles, The Last Supper, <laughs> and... I remember during it, I don't give a shit if someone wants the religious bash, but I remember during it going, well, oh, this is like seriously, seriously nasty. And really? I, to the point where, I, yeah, it was like, I was like, it was, oh, it was really great. It was a great, great show. It was a great show to be in. But I, I remember after saying, I was like, are you going to have, because like, comedy sports kind of do say it gets family friendly and with the long form show, they kind of do, um, sorry, with the adult show, as they call it, they do kind of say it's more adult themed, but kids are welcome to stay. Um, but I was like, are you going to have pissed off people in the audience kind of thing? And they're like, no, no, it's grand. And, you know, for me, who doesn't give a crap about, you know, religion and that sense, to be asking them, like, that's how, how mean and nasty. But the audience was totally fine. But if anything political came up on stage, then that's it. Walkouts, anger, you name it. Really? So not, religion was fine, but politics was off the table? Politics, generally. It was an unwritten rule. I, now, American friends might correct me on that, but I f- certainly felt it was an unwritten rule that just leave politics because you're going to get a mix of people in the audience, you know, and it, it was kind of a leave it at home thing. Like we do it in Ireland. We would go political. We would take the piss. Uh, and I imagine most Europeans would do that, but certainly in America, it just felt like just leave the politics. You know, yeah, even really the Trump bashing was like just leave it. You know, that was yeah, which I think, is interesting. I, I think in America, it's just especially during the Trump era, it got so heated that I think people needed an escape more than anything. Yeah. So you didn't want to bring it up. Yeah. But uh, well, that's interesting. That is so interesting because uh, a guy who was at Second City wrote an article actually about that, and it was called um, "Why I Quit My Dream Job," and he said. Uh, one night they were doing the review. It was uh, a red line runs through it, and it was like one of the big second city reviews. And at the end they were doing improv, and they asked for a suggestion from the audience, and it was, it was something annoying that happens to you know. You and they gave an example like losing your keys, and they were looking for mm-hmm. suggestions from the audience. And this guy shouted up sitting next to a Mexican, and it, his he was sitting next to a Mexican family in the audience, and he said that was the moment where he was like, I can't do this anymore, and it was like it was like this toxic environment was kind of happening with audiences, and it was like really, it was very poignant the article. 
Do, do you know, it's, it's, it's funny, to, on, the flips, to, to, on the flip side of it, I was, I was in Second City in Chicago one time and, and uh, I was watching the review and they did the improv set afterwards and Andy L. Sudik was in the cast um, that's when I first met Andy L. Um, and who else was in the cast? Chris Watowski was in the cast, the cast as well. Oh wow! Um, but I didn't know, I didn't know anyone, didn't know any cast. I met Chris and Andy L. Afterwards, um, and you know that was that. But um, during the improv set, you know, it was Second City. They had a server come out, and I ordered a bucket of beer. So by the time the improv set came along, you know, I was Irish. I was having a few drinks. I was having a good time. So they were looking for improv audience suggestions and when improvisers have a few drinks on them and start giving us suggestions it's never going to end well but i was i was very good so the performer there wasn't andy l there was another performer and she asked for a suggestion of a scene where might two people be or what might just some desire i think it was some desire you wanted. and i shouted up what oh yeah what name one of the wishes or desires you have in life and i shouted up i want to kiss the president and she gave me this scowl obama was president at the time she gave me this scowl and looked at me paused for a few seconds and then just said anyone else. They took Why? everyone else's suggestion. They took this, everyone else's suggestion first time all night. And I said, this, and I wasn't. No, there was no malice in it. I mean, yeah. there was absolutely no malice. It's just in a it. silly suggestion. <laughs> but I don't know whether it was the accent or whether it was, you know, the fact I was, you know, in Chicago, so Obama's from Chicago. But there was no malice in it. But anyway, it was just the look she gave me, the pause, and then moved on to somebody else, <laughs> and I just Why? disappeared into my chair. <laughs> That's a fairly hostile reaction. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> so, um, to go back to the Dublin scene, how long were you teaching and performing before you set up Tightrope? Um, I, I don't know, I'd have to look up dates. But the creation of Tightrope actually came down to, to two people. Because I didn't set it up. So, Rick Doody and Jessamyn Fairfield are the two people who were behind Tightrope. Um, I, how it came about, well, Rick, Rick would tell the story about it, but how that came about was at the time there was no tightrope. There was no tightrope. And I used to organize Love Improv, which was the Facebook group, the big community group on, on Facebook for the Irish scene. And I used to organize monthly jams. And that was kind of as part of developing developing the community. And there was no nothing else like that at the time. And in passing, I remember saying to Rick over a point that, oh, you know, if the opportunity came along to relocate to, to California, I'd be gone in the drop of a hat. <laughs> and you know, this was over points, and that's how I did actually feel about it. Um, but this kind of spooked him a bit when I said this, and it made him realise, well, if Neil goes, uh, you know, who's going to take over? Who's going to, you know, what happens to the improv scene? So he was kind of seeing it that, well, Neil's kind of holding it together, and, and that was his view. So he decided to come up with the idea of tightrope um, with oh, Jessamyn. Why? And so he, he approached me about it, but um, I really like Jessamine and, and Rick and he was like we're going to put a committee together and I was like I don't like committees so <laughs> how, about, uh, how about I just like I'm on the side and I tell you how I feel but I tell you because I don't want to follow I was like I don't want to follow my friends but anyway I did become part of the, the, the tightrope team but um, I, I just didn't want to be in that leadership role of because like, I, I was the chairperson for No Drama Theatre for like five years from its inception for five years before I, before I left and I was so passionate about it. It was like, it was like a job. I was taking it home, and like I was arguing with people who were my friends and falling out with them over the bloody color of the newsletter, you know. Uh, so I was like, I don't want that to happen with tightrope. I love improv, and the people here are good people. So you know what? I, I that's kind of when you learn to pick your battles. When you learn that picking your battles doesn't mean pick the battles you will win. It means pick the battles that are important or that are really important or are meaningful. So I kind of. 
would give input and I wanted other people to to run it because something that was important to me with improv as well was was don't be the you don't want when the word improv comes up you don't want people to go you need to talk to Neil Curran and I know that's terrible because that's you know you're talking about you're hearing my name but improv is my master I serve improv improv doesn't serve me and I think that's a dangerous thing in a community is when you have a person or one or two people and they're the go-to improv people because what that does is inevitably sets up a click sets up a cult like setting and when anyone wants to step outside of that that's when the dangerous things things can happen and so so I didn't want that to be the case improv was always my number one thing and that was what I served and it was always it's it's easy for me to say that of course inevitably people I was I was the kind of go-to person as such but I wanted that to change that I wasn't organizing everything because I was like I set up the improv festival I you know the first year of that was like myself and a chap called Brian Quinn we were the doormen we were the ticket stuck people we were the ushers <laughs> and we were the MCs like in one it was like insane what I could did in year one um but yeah I, I was like no we've got to get more people on board but I was very protective as well of improv in terms of it has to be for the right reasons. You want people who care about improv, not people who want to exploit it for their own gains. And that was, that was the thing you realise, as community was being set up, other people wanted to jump on the scene and get involved. And then that's when you're kind of like, hey, hey, who, hey, hang on a second. And you realise, well, actually, there's a danger here now that you're becoming the asshole. And they said, don't, don't do that. So, you know, assume positive intentions. So, so yeah, it, it, it reached a point where I would go to Tightrope and there would be people there that I've never met before. And there was people there who didn't know me. And it was like, this is great. I can make my show myself get drunk tonight and they'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that, so the, the scene eventually became self-sufficient and it was great. And like Dublin now has, uh, uh, there's quite a few teachers, uh, really good teachers. There's things going on beyond me. There's Tightrope, obviously. There's there's Mob Theatre. There's Grand Stretch. There's Stoke Improv. Uh, Flying Turtle have Improv. And at the Gaiety, teach, teach long form. But in terms of, of hubs, you've obviously got Tightrope, which is community-based. And then you've Mob Theatre, which is kind of that American-style um uh, American style theater theater model, whereas Tyrobe is more the community based theater model. Um, but yeah, so they're there, and you know Tyrobe now has an artistic director, and that's, which is even better because then you don't need a a team of people to 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 argue decisions. You just let a dictator do it, which is the way it should be. Um, so yeah, that's nice that it's it's all self sufficient now in that regard. But it took a lot of work to get there. Community is a very it's, it's a hard thing to do because you really have to commit to it. It is a full-time job. You have to serve the community. Community comes first. And it's not a case of that cliche of um, this is your community, so it's all about you. It's not that. You do have to, you do have to make decisions. You have, do have to make tough choices. You're going to piss off some people along the way. You're going to make decisions that aren't necessarily the best decisions you live and you learn. But you're serving a community. You're building a community. So there's a lot of sacrifice. I ploughed so much money into you know that in the early days you know with the setting up of the festival and you know we didn't get any funding so was bankrolling that in the in the loss making years um and you know even with other events i was subsidizing teachers coming to ireland because i knew it was good for the community to get it because you know people weren't traveling for improv like me um so exposing them to to other teachers groups events immense subsidizing teachers and, and performers but the way i viewed it was like it's it's like people are into golf you know people spend money on golf they'll have a golf membership they'll buy their clubs and they'll spend thousands every year on golf but it's just a hobby 
and you know that's how I kind of justified it as in like I'm investing I'm investing in something I care about um, I don't do that anymore though because I have no money left and my <laughs> PayPal GoFundMe is on the bottom of the page um, <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah but it's it's a, it is a hard thing and you you eventually reach a point where you have to get off no matter where the community is you have to take yourself out of the picture because it's so consuming it's so consuming um and i i i did that before you know that cliche of die the hero or live long enough to be the villain well if you're if you're too involved in community for too long you'll become a villain because you'll get browned off you'll start to become resentful that not everything can go the way you want it to go and you just have to let things grow itself you, the babies have to have to leave the nest or whatever cliche we could use there absolutely um, and i yeah. think i think you can fall into that trap as well of like you know you you kind of you've, you've gotten to a certain point with your improv training and your development and you think right i'm i'm here now i'm going to stay here i'm going to teach people i'm not going to develop anymore and that's kind of counterintuitive really because you're not doing your students any benefits because you're not developing and you're not bringing new ideas to them and you know that kind of thing yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so so COVID kind of in one way is nicely nicely timed thank you COVID because uh, because because COVID did force me to rethink um you know where do I want to go next you know in terms of community obviously the festival is still a thing and I'm also you know uh, a director of Improv Utopia Ireland so I, I co-run that with the founder Nick Armstrong yeah uh, which I is something that I Improv I Utopia. yeah that sounds fascinating yeah, so in probably was a bit like uh, it's a bit like how you'd meet somebody from online dating. I came across this tweet uh, from a thing called Improv Utopia, and they were advertising what was their first East Camp, which they uh, so it's a, it's a retreat basically to Americans. It's camp uh, to to Europeans. It would be a retreat, an improv retreat. And I saw this this tweet go out, and the person behind the tweet was Nick Armstrong. So I tweeted back and was like, "Hey, is this thing kind of thing?" And we got talking, and then I was in LA and actually met with him in person, had drinks, and then long behold i arrived in pennsylvania in 2004 13 or 14 and um uh, i knew nick from being uh, from meeting in la and i knew will luera because i met luera once and then i was with 125 other people i'd never met before in my life and i was the only non-american there and that was an overwhelming long weekend experience of <laughs> improv i can tell you and um, but it was wonderful once i got past the whole culture shock of everybody loves you and it's that kind of american culture of of very openness and you know everyone hugging and all the rest which as a, a grumpy irish man was very difficult the first day but i just learned <laughs> to accept it but some of the people i met in that first year are still very close friends of mine and it became an important part of my improv calendar. I was going every year. And, you know, there's three camps in the U.S. There's West Camp, which is kind of the original one. The 10-year anniversary was last year. And that's in Cambria in California. And uh, there's Yosemite, which is also California, but it's it's beside Yosemite uh, Park. And then East Campus in Pennsylvania. And then Nick one day, kind of, I was talking about doing it in Europe. And then he was up to the idea of an Irish camp, ran it by the board. And... Uh, the rest of the say is history um so it's, it is the youngest of the camps but it's nick and the team not talking about myself here but nick and the the, the board of improv utopia hands down are the epitome of what community means um you know you've got names like you've got brian james o'connell who i mentioned earlier but you also have craig kakowski you know you've got these big big names wow, and yeah. these really nice people who just care about improv they, they care deeply about improv and they give up so much of their time to these improv retreats 
um, which is a long weekend of basically you get up in the morning at 8am, have your breakfast, and then you are pretty much uh, doing improv in some way, shape, or form until 10pm at night for three days. Wow. So it, it's, it's, it's insane, but it's, it's wonderful. It's, but it is really very much a community, very much community, and um, I can't recommend it enough. And the nice thing about Improv Utopia, it, I mean, we're all volunteers in this. The nice thing about it is it's a non-profit in the U.S., so they do any profits that do come out, any surplus cash that comes out is reinvested in the improv community through diversity schemes, through funding for theatres and festivals, and they do that outside of the U.S. as well. So it's not just a, a club for the American community. They have done that outside of, of the U.S. So so very much uh, an incredible an incredible entity in the improv world. Wow, it sounds fantastic. I definitely have to try it. Um, so with the Irish one, how long has the Irish one been going? Um, I think, I, I have we had two or three? I think we've had two. I can't remember because COVID kills everything <laughs> and I don't know what year it is anymore. Um, <laughs> so before the world stopped, started burning, you had about two or three. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we were we were about to have our third. Yeah, we were about to have our third. Um, and we had to cancel it, obviously, because of that small thing called COVID. Uh, <laughs> but it w- we'll be back. So we, we've been using Newgrange, uh, up, or Newgrange, we've been up by Newgrange, in wow. Newgrange Monument. So uh, there's a, a lodge there. We don't do camp like the American camp. We do European style, Irish style. And um, so we, we're not in lodges. We're in a hotel. We're in a hotel as such. As, as, what's you might call a hotel. But it's just us there. So we have exclusivity. So you got workshops, you got jams, you got performances all under the one roof right beside Newgrange so um, yeah it's it's great like it's I'm very proud that it's the first one non-American is in Ireland and you know it has a fan base both you know European fan base and an American fan base in fact um, there's more non-Irish people who go to it than there is Irish people which is really which is crazy yeah Why? I remember like the first year when we announced it it was crazy we announced it at West Camp which was May and obviously time zone difference and literally we announced it and we were worried that you know we get people to sign up because we didn't we had the teachers we knew who the teachers were going to be but they hadn't confirmed so we couldn't say when we were announcing it hey you know uh bill murray's teaching a workshop so we felt it was a gamble we actually had to stop bookings that day because the irish and europeans were in bed and the Americans were at risk of booking the whole thing out before oh, Irish wow. and Europeans, so we had to <laughs> we had to place bookings on hold overnight so that the Irish and the European community could catch up. And of course, Ireland being Ireland, like Irish people and Irish people, like you know everything's last minute. So I was like saying to people, like, "Is this something you want to do?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I was like, "No, you need to book it. You don't understand. Like this is like, this is like you two tickets going on sale. They will be gone because people because in Britain we and even Nick I think was a little surprised at how quick it was it was selling out before we even named teachers. People trust the improv utopia brand that they will just like west camp sells out in seconds like it's a hundred places it sells out in like well not seconds it sells out in minutes it's like it's like you two selling going gone on sale um and people will just book it without even knowing the teachers they don't care because they know it's a trusted brand it's a trusted name and you will get quality teachers and, and it's just a, such a fantastic experience so yeah that was the thing with the irish one was like telling people no 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 you can't leave this to the last minute just book it book it now pay your deposit and it'll be grand so yeah we had to like perf- we had to poke the irish community and the european community to hey get on this if you want it because it'll be gone i mean it would have been could you imagine like you were the first irish improv retreat and everyone on it is american it would have been a bit of a 
diplomatic yeah, issue. <laughs> yeah, I think you would have got some, uh, you know, kickback in Dublin. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> obviously, you've done a lot of training, Neil, and you've obviously done a lot of teaching as well. I mean, how is the te- like how has that changed you as a performer? Has it developed your skills in any particular way? Oh yeah, definitely. It 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 you know you you're learning as you're learning as much teaching as you are performing now they are mutually exclusive skills in, in many ways but i think it broadens your horizons and expectations while allowing you to be kinder to yourself i mean certainly katie shoot from the maydays used to always talk about you know perform with people who are better than you so you can learn and perform for people who aren't who are who are less experienced than you so you have the opportunity to grow and and that's very true when you're when you're mm. teaching you're performing with people who are less experienced than you and with teaching you you know everyone can improvise because when we're kids we play so everyone's able to improvise yeah. your job as a teacher is to get people to not care about what they think other people think of them and it's to get them to get back in touch with that sense of play so we're all able to improvise so if you're good at what you do when you're teaching you're able to get people to realize that because you're not teaching them a skill as such well you are and you aren't because we already have the skills of play it's yeah. just we don't do it anymore we've forgotten how to do it and we have our ego telling us that we're crap or we're not going to be good enough um but it, when you're teaching you have that responsibility as a teacher everybody learns in different ways so you kind of you become kinder to yourself i think yes it there is the pressure of oh god you're now the teacher and if people watch you perform you and you suck they're not going to do your class there is that but also you do learn you know be, be kind to yourself um you know you aren't under you aren't under pressure here enjoy the experience you know the it does it definitely does broaden you get to see things in performances with your teacher eye that will give you a greater self-awareness about some of the things or some of the habits that you may have and of course one pet peeve of mine with any team not just improv is when you have a teacher who teaches something but they don't do it themselves when they're performing oh yeah I hate that. <laughs> I hate that. and i could name i could name some well-known teachers who do that and not i won't do that because it would be mean but I'm exclusive not go on neil <laughs> Here we go. Breaking news. And the first name is... Um, Stay tuned after this commercial. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, you, you do... It broadens your self-awareness of, of where you're setting your own limits. Fantastic. And what advice would you give to up-and-coming improvisers? You know, anyone starting out? Um, well, it, it, it's, it's not going to be fun at first. It's going to suck at, at times. Improv is not like sport. You know, and I, I remind this to all my students, if we were learning how to run a marathon, we would be timing, you know, how quick we do the mile and all the rest. And we could watch our progress. If you're lifting weights, you're lifting heavier, you're doing more, more reps. Mm. Improv is not like that. It's an art form. Even though we're learning skills, communication skills underneath it all, it's an art form. There is no barometer in terms of your progress. You just have that voice in your head that tells you at the end of class, you suck and i think it's important for teachers and that voice is wrong obviously but it's important for teachers to remind students of that that this is an art form you will never see yourself in the positive light that other people uh, see you in so let go of that sense of having to you know do something profound because that's all all in your head so that's my advice would be is to let go of that learn to let go of that and just focus on finding the fun in it find what it is that's fun about it and just do that um <clears throat> And also expose yourself to as many teachers and performances as you can. You're not, it's like you wouldn't learn the guitar by just going to one, by picking one guitarist and saying, I just want to play like Jimi Hendrix and not learn any other musician's music. You wouldn't do that. So it's the same thing with improv. Expose yourself to as many teachers and, and, and shows as you can. And, you know, expand that waistline of Batman's utility belts. It'll stand to you. 
Totally agree. Totally agree. What was your worst show experience and what did you learn from it? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, God. Um, well, there was, there was, I'll actually, I don't know, I'll give you a bang for your book. I'll give you two worst experiences. All right. Uh, I was only me. talking about these. I was only talking about these the other day. They're both Neil plus one experiences. Uh, thank you, Matt Holmes. <laughs> uh, experience number one was a show I did in Dublin. Um, it was part of a charity event um, for World Tinnitus Day. Uh, summer many years ago and the girl that volunteered from the audience was a very confident uh, very confident girl and I'm doing the interview piece we're coming to the end of the interview piece getting to the wrap up to get ready to do the performance piece and I asked her a question about what you know her line of work and she gave me this look and started to laugh and I realized oh my god she's not even 18 years of age so she was 16 years of age and it was at the point where it's like, I if I send her back and get someone else out, that's going to delay the show, and it's probably not. So I, I did the show with her, completely obviously bearing in mind this is an adult performing with a with a minor. So show content themes could not be were not you know was not unlimited. We did not have unlimited choices in this show, <laughs> and she was a cocky teenager in a good way. She was a very confident teenager, so she had no fear. So she was working me on stage, and any any te- themes or topics that she brought up. You know that were not appropriate. I couldn't. I couldn't go along. I couldn't go along. With. So that yeah. So that became that was my first learning was make sure. Uh, can is there someone in the audience who's already years of eighteen, over the age of eighteen, who's never seen improv before? So that that became the first learning when I asked. <laughs> that an sounds audience, like a nightmare. Uh, he was terrified yeah, the whole way through that. That was oh that whole way through that show. I was absolutely terrified. I was like you know I, I obviously could control my content, but I couldn't control her. So you know any hint of anything she brought up about say a relationship in the show wasn't gonna wasn't gonna happen. There was nothing <laughs> like that. And she was working. She knew she was playing. She was playing, playing me. But it was, yeah, it was tough. Um, but it worked out fine. It was a good show. It was fine. It was just. Yeah. Oh, I bet the audience loved it. Right they probably just saw how oh, awkward yeah. you oh, were. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. You, this is why you make the millions in improv, Neil. <laughs> That's what they were saying. And <laughs> um, the second one was a show in Barcelona. I was doing two nights in Barcelona. Um, partnership with Barcelona Improv Group and one of the nights the second night it was, there was a chap I got out of the audience he was a front row guy he was you know he was a male about the same age as me he was a little bit quiet his English wasn't great and he struggled to, to, to understand me but I, I was working with him on stage I mean I've had people with language barriers before but it was totally totally fine but his whole family was sitting in the front row so I, I thought right, let's get the family in on it so I asked him about people in the family but it was like everything I said was the wrong thing to say I you know I said oh is that he, he had a he, beside him there was a child and there was there was a girl so I made this assumption that was his wife and that was his sister and his dad was there but his I, I you know I didn't think they I'm not sure they knew that what improv was and what was going on. I, it might have been a family event, but during the show, then when it, before we'd even started the performance, and I was talking to the, talking to him and asking him questions, his dad got very angry in the audience and shouted something up on the stage. Uh, so I could tell, like, they have no idea this is improv, and they have no idea what what's happening here. So the, the lesson from that, so in the end, um, it was no point in actually doing a performance piece with him because the the language barrier was a struggle. So you know, we we conducted the interview, and I I sent it back to the audience, and and it was all fine, and I got someone else up, and it was totally totally fine. Yeah, um, the anger's I, a bit strong. <laughs> like, you know, like, I was oh he was he was annoyed, and like um. Before I even got to, like, as soon as the show was over, one of the, the, the people from Barcelona Improv Group who could speak the language went over and chatted to him. And they're like, oh, no, it's totally fine. They just, they, like, this was a show. They, they, they didn't know what they were coming to see, kind of thing. But they stayed for the second half. 
So it was all good. Like they weren't offended. Oh, okay. And so everything, everything was fine. There was, it was a language barrier. Ultimately, it was a language barrier. I got someone else in the audience. The show and it was totally great. But I remember like after the show going, you know what? I've earned the million. The millions we make in improv, I have earned those millions today. <laughs> <laughs> but not, it, it was fun. But that, then that was the second lesson was that, you know, aside from being over the age of 18, the second thing is that you can have, you do have an understanding of what I'm saying. So they became the two big learnings with Neil Plus One that, you know, I will carry to my grave. You need to be over 18 and speak English. <laughs> you need to be over 18 and don't have to speak English, but you have to at least understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Fair enough. But, you know, you know I, I, when I did that, that show in Barcelona, I, I, I felt all because the, the dad was angry and I had no way of communicating in, 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 his, in his language. You know, this is improv and this is what happens. But um, there's a video of it. Uh, you know, and I was reminded, like, I know you, you handled that very well and very professionally. Always good. You got someone else in the audience, and they stuck around, so there was no love lost anyway. But you know, that was, but that was tough. But this is improv, baby. You know, this is why we do it. Got to roll with the punches. <laughs> like, you want to take people from the audience, you're gonna take people from the audience. I had somebody once. This is not a, a tough show, but I had somebody. Uh, there was a girl in the audience, and she, I, I picked her up because she had this quirky hat on, and I thought she looks fun. And she, as I'm walking up, this is in Toronto, and as I'm walking up to the stage and people are cheering, she kind of whispers in my ear, I'm stoned and wasted right oh now. My God. Like, oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was a whole new level of fun. Oh, yeah, but that was a very interesting show. <laughs> it was very interesting because she couldn't remember any of it afterwards. And I remember her saying to me, um, she connected on Facebook, and I remember her saying, oh, my friends told me it was a really great show, but I can't remember anything of it. It's like, yeah, you made me work. You made me work. <laughs> I'd be surprised. I'd be like, if if you turned around and went, she carried me. She did all the work. <laughs> she did. She did all the heavy lifting. But you know what? But it does bring it back to everything that she did. Everything that those other two people, the the the, the teenager and that chap who, who didn't understand, didn't understand a lot of the saying, they still were doing the right thing. And that's an important thing to remember. If if all of those moments had failed, if they were a disaster, it was on me. It definitely wasn't on them. Mm. So you know that kind of brings it back to that thing of my role is to support and treat them like gods when they're on stage it must be such a good muscle to develop though you know in terms of like when you're on stage you know when you're playing with a team of improvisers it must be so easy after doing it you know repeatedly with people who have never done it before it's all, all those egos on an improv team oh god <laughs> don't get me started <laughs> oh, I love it <laughs> And uh, Neil, how do you prepare for shows? Do you have like a routine or anything? I I used it until I realized it was a superstitious thing and you can't be not religious and be superstitious because superstition comes from religion. So I ditched all that. So I don't even, you know, I try, I don't really even go to a green rooms if I can avoid it. Um, So yeah, I I might, at at most I'll do, for people who've taken class with me know I have views on warm-ups. At at most, if I need to, I'll do a vocal warm-up. But, you know, doing energy games and doing, scenes and more work you can't really do them on your own anyway um but yeah that's you know i have a cup of tea or something do a little vocal warm-up there's no elixir of uh, yeah this new warm-up nobody cares anyway but uh, no there's no elixir it's just i don't i don't particularly like warm-ups for a show yeah well i understand uh, doing them on your own would be a bit awkward like zip zap boing or something in a corner by yourself i, I was uh, in the birmingham improv festival and uh, i was invited to be part of their they were doing a maestro uh, and Rachel um, uh, Ray Row Ray Row sorry yeah Ray Row was was from from North Coast was performing in it 
Um, there were quite a few people I was, I was really excited to be performing with. And so <laughs> I won't mention names because it doesn't matter the names, but they, before the show, they got us up and I realized they were getting us up to do a warm up. And it was, it was a professional warm up, like there was like 20 people in this maestro. And I won the maestro, though, I just want to point that out. Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> dropping it was like, in there casually. <laughs> <laughs> just casually dropping, like, I've never won anything in improv before. Uh, it's the only recognition I've ever gotten this damn art from. Uh, but <laughs> there's like 20 people in, and the two directors of the maestro did a proper warm up with us, and that was the most uncomfortable 20 minutes of the whole performance. Because I just don't like warming up, it just. I, feel uncomfortable during it for some weird reason yeah i think it's a love-hate thing i i know quite a lot of people who hate warming up uh for me i kind of need it because i find it just gets me a bit more focused for the show yeah. but i think it's everybody's own preference i don't think there's a you know a, it's a hard and fast rule either way you know but um yeah what's the best improv show you've ever seen oh god that's like <laughs> a favorite movie no first one that comes All to mind don't overthink it <laughs> Okay, I'll, 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 I'll give you sound bites of things. So I don't want to just name one or two because I've seen so much improv, it would be totally unfair to just name one or two. So obviously, yeah. I'm going to say TJ and Dave because they're just incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Made A's, obviously, because they're just in incredible. Um, Project 2, uh, sci fi improv, that's Katie Shute, oh, uh, yeah. Chris Mead, and, and yeah. John Monkhouse was involved in. I just love, love, love that show. It's it just, that's just joy a joy to behold um theatre boo in italy uh, they're again fantastic you won't see improv like that in the u.s so it's something unique to europe and similarly uh la carpeote in so, france so, so, sorry sorry theatre boo just to go back to that what, what kind of form do they do is it long form is it short form narrative um yeah i suppose you, yeah if you want to call it long form I, it, improvised theater is the most fitting term for it so it's you know the, I, they've performed it in professed ireland a few times and they've brought a different show every single time in a different cast so i've seen it as a duo i've seen them as a as an ensemble one year they did ma they did a show on masks so they did the comedy dell'arte um so yeah they, they they're very theatrical very funny and very dramatic as well and oh, wow. um, Carpe, like Carpeote in France, and they're the masters of physical theatre. Um, really, 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 really good stuff. Amazing. Um, what else? Uh, then, like in terms of American groups, then I said TJ and Dave. Uh, obviously, the the, the 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 greatest Harold team in the world is, is obviously King Ten, in my opinion. The, oh wow! I've never even heard of them. Where are they based? King they're based in LA. You got to get on the on the internet interwebs and look at their shows. And <laughs> uh, like they've been going like King Ten, like K I King Ten, yeah. And then T. Yeah, they've been going about twenty years, I think, of doing Harold's and you. Oh, wow. And and don't, without going down the, the rabbit hole of talking Harold, like w unless you're told, hey, they're doing a Harold, you won't even notice they're doing a Harold. They do it so so well. Um, wow. Uh, who else? Um, to drop they see we haven't seen improv in so long now it's hard to just recount recall them all oh you'll think of like 50 immediately after you walk away oh a big bang in boston um big bang improv or well they're they're kind of not all in boston now uh north coast the improvised hip-hop um they are oh, they're they're amazing um the show or showstopper obviously that's another uh, british musical group um 
What else? God, you probably have to pause this bit while I think about names. <laughs> to be fair, you've uh, done well. You've named about eight or nine so far, so okay, I think, I think okay. that's, that's acceptable. <laughs> I've covered a lot of bases there, <laughs> but like that's it's not that's not a definitive list. There's like, every every improv show is different and offers something something different. Um, there's so many more great shows. Like you've put me on the spot now. <laughs> Can't think of it. Well, that's my job, Neil. <laughs> God, you should have given me these questions in advance so I could have prepared. I know it's like the late late show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, who would you love to improvise with, Neil? there's someone you could perform with who would who would the dream one be that you have or haven't performed with previously it's going to probably sound like a wanker answer but it, it, it would actually be non-improvisers um, not that I don't want to perform like I mean everyone would love to say I'd love to do a show with Bill Murray it'd probably be hell to do it but or like Ryan Styles okay if it's going to be an improviser I'm going to say Ryan Styles because he is he is patient zero you know he is the original uh the original improviser to me so I, I would love 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 a chance to perform with Ryan Stiles or even just meet him uh, that'd be nice if anyone is out there uh, he's in the, he's in Bellingham and um, if you can put, but he doesn't reply to my, my emails I uh, know I've never emailed him either. but no uh, yeah, but yeah if I'm an improviser I would I would kill I would kill uh, uh, to, to have a chance to perform or just even meet him and um, but I think there's something interesting there's, there's like non-improvisers in the public eye that I would love to do Neil plus one I would love to do Neil plus one with say one of the Irish government politicians one of the government <laughs> ministers or to a lesser extent a UK minister but you know because I'm obviously no Irish politicians I think there'd be something fun about it not in a kind of making them pick on a politician but I think it would be an opportunity to see an authentic vulnerable side of a politician that um, we don't normally get to see so I think I think that would be would be interesting as well um, that is a fantastic answer I love that <laughs> so right, might, but yeah so I might see you on stage with Michal Martin or Leo Varek or could you point. imagine could you imagine <laughs> or Eamon Ryan he'd fall asleep <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I'd love to do it I would love to do it love to do it oh, that's a great I love that well fingers crossed one day we'll see you on stage one day a tightrope <laughs> one night only yeah, t- one night entire... Leo Varadkar and Neil Curran <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, I suppose like, there is a possibility because like Kelly Shatter is one of the great improv- improvisers in Dublin um, and her dad is a former politician you know strictly speaking I could ask Kelly if she'll ask her dad if he'd do a bit of improv I could do that make it um, so <laughs> yeah I could do that. and he was he was actually a great politician so maybe maybe he'd get it. You know, maybe we need to pick on somebody who we'd love people like maybe we need to go after like the current government I don't yeah know. watch the space Sean. even watch if space. He, even if he's just like a guest monologist for uh, an Armando or something like, it should still be amazing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. could you imagine <laughs> Uh, so Neil, is there anything you want to promote? Uh, like, have you got anything online or any classes or anything you want to promote at the moment? Um, I do have some upcoming uh, my online program, but I don't have the dates yet. They're actually going to go uh, up over the next couple of days, so probably straight after the weekend. Uh, but they will be on my website, loweredetone.com, or you'll see me talking about it on Facebook. And um, in the COVID world, I do the I, I did tailor my courses for the online uh, world, but they aren't just a copy and paste from what I was doing in person. So they are uniquely tailored for, for the Zoom world. Um, so yeah, if that's something you want to try or see what I'm doing there, because that's the thing with teaching online is, 
you know, you have to realize that you are not recreating the stage on screen. And once you can do that, you are able to embrace performing online as as a medium in its own right. So, um, so yeah, so that'll get my website, or I'll be tweeting about it or something to that effect. Um, but I don't have the dates yet because that's really inconvenient of me. <laughs> okay, so uh, t- TBC. <laughs> yes, TBC. <laughs> Brilliant. And obviously, uh, guys, check out. Um Improv Utopia, once uh, the world stops burning, uh, I'm sure that'll be up and running again, and up to tightrope. And uh, Neil Plus One, I, I for one, I'm going to be going up to Dublin, and I may see Neil with the politician at some point on stage, so that'll be something to look forward to. <laughs> if, if Michal Martin is listening, you know. <laughs> of course he is. <laughs> but uh, Neil, thank you so much for being on today. It was so much fun talking with you. Really, really Thanks, John. It was good to chat to you. What a great guy. So nice talking with Neil. He was so, so interesting. I could talk to him all day about improv, but, but definitely check out Neil's shows. If you want to find out more about Neil's classes and shows, check out Lower the Tone, the website, and there's all the details uh, coming up with Neil's upcoming classes, shows, etc. Definitely try and check out Neil Plus One if you get the opportunity. I'm definitely going to do it. I'm fascinated to see it after hearing that. Next week, I'm talking with Sean Lothian from Do Not Adjust Your Stage, The Wilsons, F.A., and Humunculus. Now, I've known Sean for quite a while, and he's an insanely good improviser. He's probably one of the most consistent players I've ever seen. He's always on form when he's performing. He's from very renowned teams like the Wilsons, Do Not Adjust Your Stage. And it was so great to talk with him about how he got into improv, his experiences, his training. Definitely check it out, guys. It's a really good episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening in, as always. Big shout out to Crowander for the theme music space fun. And hopefully see you next week, guys. Have a good one. Bye.